Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear from Pete Musto and John Russell. Later, Steve Ember will present our American history series, The Making of a Nation. But first, here is Pete Musto. The European Law Enforcement Agency, Europol, says criminals are targeting a fearful public and affecting the fight against the coronavirus. Last week, Europol officials reported that criminals are selling counterfeit products and falsely representing themselves as healthcare workers. They also accused criminals of attacking computers at a time when many people do their work online at home. One Europol report noted a cyber attack on a hospital in the Czech Republic where workers carry out tests for COVID-19, the disease caused by the virus. It said the attack forced hospital officials to cancel planned operations on patients. Organized crime groups are well known for identifying new ways of earning money. The agency said that some groups have found new ways to trick people who are afraid of the virus. Catherine DeBall is Europol's executive director. She noted that criminals have quickly seized the chance to profit from the crisis by changing their methods of operation or developing new ones. DeBall added that organized crime groups Capacity to exploit this crisis means we need to be constantly prepared. Europol's report lists four main forms of illegal activity. Cybercrime, fraud, counterfeit and poor quality goods, and organized property crime. It noted that criminals make and sell high-demand products like face masks or medicine. Some may even act like medical workers to get into homes or businesses. Europol noted the relative ease of collecting personal information with so many Europeans now doing their jobs online at home. Coronavirus criminal activity is not limited to Europe. An operation in 90 countries, overseen by international police agency Interpol, identified many suspects. They were seeking fast money, notably with the sale of counterfeit masks and medicines. The operation was carried out in early March. Interpol said it halted the work of 37 organized crime groups and seized 34,000 false and poor-quality masks, as well as more than $14 million in possibly dangerous medicines. The corona spray, corona packages, and medicine are but the tip of the iceberg 
for this new rise in counterfeiting, the agency said. COVID-19 causes mild health problems for most people. They develop a high body temperature and have difficulty breathing. But the disease can cause more serious health problems and death for others, especially for older adults and people with existing health problems. Europol noted how one European company sent 6.6 million euros to another in Singapore to buy face masks and personal cleaning products. The goods were never received, the report said. It did not identify either company. Criminals also are a threat to individuals as governments order hundreds of millions of people to stay at home to slow the spread of the virus. There have been several different methods of fraud that criminals have used to get inside private homes. But they often involve someone acting as a medical official, running a corona test, and providing cleaning products or informative material, Europol said. In one European country, an individual was notified by phone of a family member hospitalized with the virus. The individual then received a middle-of-the-night visit from people who falsely identified themselves as doctors. These people wore protective equipment and even gave the victim a false virus test for the coronavirus. European officials have warned the public to be careful about possible fraud during these unusual times. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen noted that many people are spending increased time on the Internet for work or to just keep busy at home. She said this means that criminals exploit our concerns about the coronavirus. Our fear becomes their business opportunity, she said. I'm Pete Musto. In recent weeks, public health officials have been making many statements about the new coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19. Officials give either very general or more detailed information about the virus. They often use certain kinds of words and expressions and their explanations may include numbers or percentages. These issues will be our subject this week on Everyday Grammar. Expressions of quantity often appear in news stories about the coronavirus. When speaking with reporters, 
experts often talk about numbers of cases in order to give people an idea of what is going on in their country. One such expert is Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Here, he is talking about the spread of the coronavirus in the United States. Importantly, there are a number of areas in the country that have relatively few cases. Those are the ones that are vulnerable and dangerous. You heard Dr. Fauci say the words a number of and few. These are two important expressions of quantity. They are somewhat general in meaning. For example, a number of always means more than one, but it is unclear exactly how many a number of refers to. Similarly, the word few means more than one, but could be five, ten, or even more. It is important to note that both of these expressions describe plural count nouns, areas, and cases. In general, English speakers use a number of and few along with count nouns, nouns that can be counted. In the example we heard, Fauci probably used these expressions of quantity because he was talking about general trends in the United States. He surely did not have the time to talk about specific numbers of cases nationwide. Such information would take far too long to give in a short interview with a reporter. Grammar experts often talk about different kinds of expressions of quantity. Some of these, such as a number of, almost always have the word of. Other examples include the terms a lot of or lots of. So, for example, you might hear a health expert say a lot of doctors are taking extra steps to keep themselves safe. The word few is a little more complicated and harder to explain. Few appears in a different class of expressions of quantity. It sometimes appears in American English as a few or even a few of. The word of only appears sometimes. And in some cases, speakers change the meaning of few with an adverb, as in very few or relatively few. If you would like to learn more about expressions of quantities, be sure to read the story How Much Do You Know About Quantifiers? You can find it on our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. Now let us turn to how a scientist or medical expert might give more specific information when talking about quantities. One of the central questions about the coronavirus pandemic is this. How many people have to go to the hospital because of it? Let's listen to an example. Here, Dr. Pale Coley, 
tells about specific information from a report by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC. Yeah, so the CDC report that just came out a couple of days ago was a little bit of a surprise because what we had mostly been hearing was that older people end up having ICU admissions and hospitalizations. But what it actually showed was that 38% of hospitalizations were people under 65. Wow. 48% of ICU admissions were people under 65. Here, Dr. Coley describes numbers related to hospitalizations and intensive care unit, or ICU, admissions. The ICU is a part of a hospital that provides care for very sick people. Note that Coley always used the word of following the percentage. So, she said 38% of hospitalizations and 48% of ICU admissions. The general pattern she used was percentage plus of plus noun. You will hear this kind of pattern in all kinds of news reports. For example, you might hear about an education report that says 25% of American college students have more than $10,000 in student loan debt. The goal today was to show you a number of ways that health experts describe quantities. When you read or listen to doctors or other experts in the future, ask yourself how they are expressing quantities. Do they give general descriptions of trends, or do they give specific numbers? When you ask yourself these kinds of questions, you will begin to see patterns in how people express different kinds of information. Be sure to make note or record the patterns you find. Then try to use what you learn, either in speaking or writing. And that's Everyday Grammar. I'm John Russell. To help protect yourself against the new coronavirus, wash your hands for 20 seconds with soap and water before you eat, after using the toilet, and after touching anything many other people touch, like a seat on a public bus. If you cannot wash your hands with soap and water, use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. Taking these steps can help prevent not only the new coronavirus disease, but also colds, flu, and other viruses. For more information, visit the following websites. The World Health Organization at www.who.int or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at www.cdc.gov. Welcome to the Making of a Nation, American History in VOA Special English. I'm Steve Ember. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, 
I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Dwight Eisenhower was elected president in 1952. The following year, the Korean War ended with an armistice, a ceasefire agreement. During his presidency, Eisenhower began a tradition of meetings between the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union. He met with Soviet leaders Nikolai Bulganin and Nikita Khrushchev. These meetings may have helped reduce the threat of a nuclear war between the two countries during the Cold War. By 1960, Eisenhower had served two terms. The Constitution was changed to prevent presidents from being elected more than twice after Franklin Roosevelt won four times. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment throughout America's corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. At the end of Eisenhower's first term, he was still very popular. He had suffered a heart attack, but the Republican president felt strong enough to campaign again in 1956. His Democratic Party opponent was Adlai Stevenson. They had been the candidates in the presidential election four years earlier. This time, 
Eisenhower won almost 10 million more votes than Stevenson, an even bigger victory than in 1952. Eisenhower's second term, however, presented problems. The Soviet Union launched the Space Age by putting the first satellite into orbit around Earth. Fidel Castro established a communist government in Cuba. Many white Americans were fighting the Supreme Court's decision to end racial separation in schools. And the American economy suffered a recession. Eisenhower's popularity dropped during his second term. This would make it difficult for the Republican Party's next candidate for president. The delegates who attended the presidential nominating convention in the summer of 1960 feared that their party would lose the election in November. They had to find the strongest candidate possible. Many believed that Richard Nixon was the strongest. Nixon had been a senator and a member of the House of Representatives. He had been Eisenhower's vice president for eight years. When Eisenhower suffered several serious illnesses, Nixon had a chance to show his abilities to lead the nation. He showed great strength while facing an angry crowd during a trip to South America. He also gained support when he defended the United States to Khrushchev during a trip to the Soviet Union. Nixon's closest opponent for the Republican nomination was Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the governor of New York State. He came from one of the richest families in America. Richard Nixon easily won the support of the party. The delegates nominated him on the first vote. He accepted the nomination, and he called for new efforts for peace and freedom around the world. The race for the Democratic nomination was much more difficult. The Democratic Party thought it would have no problem winning the presidential election. Many candidates entered the race for the nomination. One was Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. Another was Senator John Kennedy of Massachusetts. Humphrey had been elected to the Senate three times. He was a strong activist for civil rights and peace. Kennedy was a Navy hero in World War II. He was handsome and only 43 years old. He was also Roman Catholic. No Catholic had ever been elected President of the United States. Kennedy and Humphrey began to compete in state primary elections, the first step in the nominating process. Kennedy won an important primary in Wisconsin. But voters in Protestant areas of that state did not support him. The question then became, could he win in another state, West Virginia? 
most of the voters in that state were Protestant. On the last night of the primary campaign in West Virginia, Kennedy spoke about his religion. He said the President of the United States promises to defend the Constitution, and that, he said, includes the separation of the government from any religion or church. Kennedy won a big victory in West Virginia. He then went on to win many votes in other primaries. He received the nomination on the first vote at the Democratic Convention. In his acceptance speech, he said he would ask Americans to help their country and sacrifice for their country. After the party conventions, the two candidates, Kennedy and Nixon, began to campaign around the country. Nixon charged that Kennedy was too young to be president. He said Kennedy did not know enough about governing. Kennedy attacked the Republican record of the past eight years. He said President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon had not done enough to bring progress to the nation. Protestant groups expressed concerns about Kennedy's religion. They wondered if he would be influenced by the Pope. They wondered if the leader of the Roman Catholic Church would try to make policy for the United States. Kennedy answered by repeating his strong support for the constitutional separation of church and state. Public opinion surveys showed the election campaign to be very close. Then the candidates agreed to hold four debates on television. In the first debate, the candidates showed they did not differ too widely on major issues. Kennedy appeared calm and sure, but Nixon did not feel well. He appeared thin and tired. Many people who had not considered voting for Kennedy now began to change their minds. To them, he looked more presidential. Most people seemed to feel that Kennedy won the first debate. Nixon probably won the second one. And both men did about the same in the last two. In the fourth debate, they expressed widely different opinions about whether the United States was making progress. Kennedy believed there had been little progress under Eisenhower and Nixon. Franklin Roosevelt said in 1936 that that generation of Americans had a rendezvous with destiny. I believe in 1960 and 61 and 2 and 3, we have a rendezvous with destiny. And I believe it incumbent upon us to be the defenders of the United States and the defenders of freedom. And to do that, we must give this country leadership and we must get America moving again. Nixon disagreed. He believed the United States had not been standing still, but there was more to be done. It is essential with the conflict that we have around the world that we not just hold our own, 
that we not keep just freedom for ourselves. It is essential that we extend freedom, extend it to all the world. And this means more than what we've been doing. It means keeping America even stronger militarily than she is. It means seeing that our economy moves forward even faster than it has. It means making more progress in civil rights than we have, so that we can be a splendid example for all the world to see. Another issue in the 1960 presidential debates was the Chinese attack on the islands of Kimoi and Matsu in the Taiwan Strait. And another was how to deal with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. After the debates, the presidential candidates campaigned around the country again. Nixon proposed that if he were elected, he would travel to Eastern Europe and meet with Khrushchev. Kennedy proposed the Peace Corps, a program to send Americans to developing countries to provide technical aid and other help. On Election Day in November, the voters chose John Kennedy as their 35th president. His victory, however, was a close one. Almost 69 million people voted. Kennedy won by fewer than 120,000 votes. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. 